0: This week's Ocean Allison podcast episode is brought to you by Truly Wetsuits, durable, fleece-lined wetsuits for the woman ocean adventurer. On Black Friday, November 25th, 2016, get free shipping on orders up to $55 anywhere in the world by using discount code FREESHIPPING. And on Cyber Monday, November 28th, Get 30% off any Truly Wetsuit by using discount code CYBERMONDAY30. Visit trulywetsuits.com, that's T-R-U-L-I, wetsuits.com, to order your discounted wetsuit that will help you stay warm, look great, and feel truly yourself. And now to this week's podcast episode. This week's Ocean Advocate is Charlotte Vick. Charlotte is the Director of Engagement at Mission Blue, working with partners worldwide to facilitate, support, and fund ocean education, science, and policy efforts. In other words, she's all ocean all the time. Hi, Charlotte. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, very excited to talk with you today, all about your lifelong work as an ocean advocate. It's truly incredible what you've accomplished in your years. Listeners, to give you guys a little bit of background, on how charlotte is joining us today on the podcast charlotte and i met about two years ago now at blue ocean film festival and conservation summit in monaco in 2015 we had a chance to just chat i think it was over breakfast or something one of the days during the festival but we had a chance to chat for a little bit and it was really great chatting with you charlotte and you definitely inspired me you know having accomplished so much in your career And one thing that we talked about that really blew me away was when you told me that you had been very, very, very influential in making the Google Earth um, Explore the Ocean layer happen. You partnered with Mission Blue and Sylvia Earle Alliance and Google to really make that a reality. So I want to ask you about Google Earth Ocean layer now. First off, could you just describe to listeners... That maybe haven't explored the ocean layer of Google Earth, you know what does it allow you to do? I, I know it's kind of been coined as like an underwater street view in some senses. What is it? What does it allow the average person at their computer to do?
1: Well, um, there <laughs> there has been an evolution of that project and. Um, Starting back in the beginning, in about 2007, there, as a result of a meeting between Dr. Sylvia Earle and John Hanke, who was then the head of Google Earth, Sylvia had said that she felt that the globe was certainly not finished because nothing that was the blue part had been built out in any way, and she, in fact, even called it Google Dirt, or she said she might, you might as well name it Google Dirt. On John's side, it just had never occurred to him that it wasn't finished and that, that the ocean needed to be built out. And he invited her to go to Google to give it a talk. And as a result of that talk, a group of Google engineers and employees got together and decided to spend their 20% time that Google provides working on the project. As a result of that, several different things happened. We began to build out the bathymetry, which is always a work in progress. The amount of actual bathymetric information that we have in the ocean that's available in public sources is is rather small by comparison with the actual Earth. Then we were also wanting to come up with ways to do an engagement that is around a bit of storytelling. And we kind of called that a story layer, content layer that was based on imagery, uh, still images and video. That would enable people who had information and content around the world to put it in and let it reside geographically in the place in the ocean that it was. There were also some other data layers that were being provided by various partners, including the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. That project, we, it took us uh, a couple of years uh, really to get it going and then to get it built out, and it was launched in February of 2009. The project And and Google Earth still contains a lot of those things. However, everyone has been sort of waiting for and hoping to see sort of a 2.0 version of how, how that will be. And that is still a work in progress and anticipated perhaps next year in 2017. In the meantime, really, the the world has, has raced forward with social media, with all kinds of new data, with vastly more power. And even in the last few days, announcements on supercomputing and quantum computing have been made. So the It's all a a gigantic work in progress at this point still, and many alternatives have come out. Underwater Street View was actually one of the things we launched at the Blue Ocean Film Festival in Monterey in 2010. That began to bring in 360-degree imagery that could be placed in a cyber atlas like Google Earth, And just so many ways of doing these things have now come to the fore, and everyone is playing around with them. New tools, too, are also in production in various places. At Esri, for example, just in the last few weeks, there has been a tool rolled out that is called Ecological Marine Units, which enables you to look at an ecosystem in more of a 3D way that has been available and was developed by the US Geological Survey and Roger Sayer there for terrestrial areas several years ago and as ecological land units but now we're beginning to look at the 3D ecological marine units which can be i think personally believe it it is the beginning of our being able to describe the key ecosystems of the world And what their value might be to the global balance sheet from an economic point of view, putting a valuation on ecological services that uh, the ocean provides, like the production of oxygen, for example.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, in, in talking about the Google Earth Explore the Ocean Layer project and what it is and what it can become in the future, you mentioned a lot of different technologies. Obviously, Google is a technology company. How has it been for you in your lifelong career as an ocean advocate, working in a number of different sectors. How has it been for you keeping up with the new technologies that are coming out? How do you approach the advancement and the fast-paced nature of new technologies coming out all the time?
1: Well, I, you know, I'm old enough that I go back to sort of a, a pre one version of these kinds of things, so that a pre-computer perspective. So I think it was helpful for me to grow up in the kind of family that looked at land in layers, which meant that you needed to understand the geology underneath your land and, you know, what the hydrology was. And then perhaps, you know, if there were minerals or other things in it, and then what kind of soil did you have? And then what kind of rainfall you got and and how you fit into the watershed, all sorts of things that Growing up in the Texas Panhandle, you know, water was a precious commodity, and we we looked at what we could do with the limitations of the water that we had available to us. It was interesting to move into an environment where it was all water, but most of it was salt, and still the freshwater was a very precious commodity in Pacific Islands where I I worked. I had been for years familiar with USGS quadrant maps and how you do planning on the land. And when I was working on a grant for coastal zone management for American Samoa at the time that I lived there, it was my feeling that the most important thing that we could build with the grant money we were we were provided was, in fact, some of the kinds of detailed maps that you would do on a USGS kind of quadrant, but those needed to be also built out into the water so that we understood what would happen when the water ran off of the land and onto the reef. And um, we did a very comprehensive natural resources survey as well as economic surveys and those kinds of things until we had what became one of the earliest of the coastal atlases and it was built on the size of the USGS quadrant maps and uh, enabled us to look at different maps and overlay tissue if you know what I the old way of mapping was to take your base map for a quadrant and then trace out an area that was for example under consideration for some sort of development And then you could use that tracing to go and look at the impact that that particular footprint would have on everything, trees, coral, political boundaries, all the flora and fauna and things. So that's still the same concept, but the tools have changed and they have become far more sophisticated and they are going to become more sophisticated still. Often with technology, you kind of... It's, it's almost like you're running a race and you don't really have know what direction things are going to take. And you just kind of run with the group and watch what other people are doing. And you kind of, if there's a fork in the road, you have to make a decision on which direction you're going. And, and that is um, more or less the experience of trying to run with the technology at the same time you're trying to absorb it and then look down the road to make sure you know where you're going next. So you don't Run off a cliff, if you will, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so uh, but it's it, you really have to be part of it, I think, uh, and watching it, if nothing else, uh, to know what's going to happen next, and often you're surprised things happen that weren't anticipated, and
0: so I mentioned in the intro, you are the director of engagement at Mission Blue, and you have been for about eight or nine years now, and also with the Sylvia Earle Alliance, one of the main pretty much the main mission of Mission Blue and the Sylvia Earl Alliance is to create a global network of hope spots. For listeners, if you've never heard of hope spots, they're similar to marine protected areas. They are basically expanses of ocean, some larger, some smaller, that Mission Blue is hoping to and actually getting protection for. So Charlotte, as part of the Mission Blue and Sylvia Earle Alliance team. What do Hope Spots mean for the Mission Blue team? You know, what what do they represent? And why are they so vitally important? Why is it the main mission of Mission Blue?
1: As you probably know, recently the International Union for the Conservation of Nature had its World Conservation Congress, and a goal was recommended a number, 30% protection. Part of what Hope Spots is about is to gather those people who are stakeholders in particular parts of the ocean who care about a, perhaps a local area and they don't necessarily have the political will yet for it to go to be protected. It's a way of beginning to look at various parts of the world that do have attributes that would make their protection particularly helpful to bringing about a more healthy ocean and a more healthy planet. I'm really using my own words. Um, There are many ways of looking at what the hope spots represent. Dr. Sylvia Earle was the person who actually called for a network of hope spots large enough to improve the the health of the ocean. And it's a localized approach to that, if you will, and with some help from some of the scientists of the world who can point out to us places that are of particular concern, like the Ross Sea, for example.
0: Yeah, which was just declared a marine protected area just recently, right?
1: Yes, and and we've been working on that for nearly a a decade, and (laughs) it's fantastic that it finally came about.
0: Yeah, an amazing victory for sure. And, And so you mentioned that Mission Blue partners with scientists from different entities to figure out which areas of the ocean are good candidates to become (laughs) hope spots it's also a nomination based um, initiative that the public can nominate places and parts of the ocean to become hope spots and i know that Mission Blue, you know, your team just announced somewhat recently that there's 14 new hope spots that were nominated by citizens of this planet that, that want to see localized areas of the ocean protected. Why is it important, do you think, to allow the public to have a say in what areas of the ocean are going to be protected in this globalized network?
1: Well, first, because sometimes local knowledge is as important as any scientific knowledge, especially in the case of generations of indigenous people or just locals who know their area and they know what it has been and what it can be. I think of any number of places around the world where people are just sad that areas that have have been highly rich and productive and alive are degrading and their desire to bring them back and restore them to their full productive health. And that's important because um, not only of the ecosystem services that it provides and keeping the ocean healthy to provide us with the oxygen that it provides, but also just the living things within it. And to keep it chemically alive and restorative for the kinds of ecosystem services that the ocean provides. Uh, Often the people who know those areas best are the ones that have, have lived with them through generations.
0: So basically the process is Hope Spot is declared, you know, whether from the public nomination or science or a combination. Can you kind of walk us through the process of after the Hope Spot is declared, what is the actual process like? I mean, I know it's very long and complicated, but uh, what's the process (laughs) like in, in actually getting that area to be protected?
1: We recently formed a Hope Spot Council and uh, met, it met for the first time during the International Union for the Conservation of Nature World, World Conservation Congress in Honolulu. It met for the first time in September. There was a second meeting recently, and they are beginning to pull together all of the ways in which we can make this easy and effective. Um, with various partners. Um, one of the things that, we, of course, if if we're going to have something nominated, we need the local representation, especially if it's new to us and we, we have no particular information about it. We need to know a little bit about the, the location. We need to have some photography, maybe some videography that will help us define and, and make it possible for people not only from that area, but from other parts of the world to understand the importance of that particular location. That process is increasingly defined. And even yesterday, we were having a wonderful discussion about how well the elements and pieces that have been defined by the, by the Hope Spot Council have been coming together on the next round of places that are under consideration for being named Hope Spots.
0: And so I want to kind of shift the conversation a little bit away from, you know, Hope Spots and ocean protection, even though I think we could probably talk about that for a very long time. (laughs) Yes. Um, I, I want to shift the conversation a bit to policy. And I know that you've had a lot of experience working in kind of the policy sector. We have here in the United States have had a very interesting political occurrences happen in the last few weeks with our the outcome of the U.S. presidential election president elect Donald Trump and you're from originally from Texas and I'm originally (laughs) from Florida you know both red states in this recent election you know you currently live in Austin you're on the South by Southwest eco board of advisors which is really amazing you know so you're living in Texas in this red state I'm from Florida red state as well and we're both ocean advocates environmental advocates. From your point of view, personally, what does the outcome of this election mean for science and the environment over the next four years? You know, strictly science and the environment, because obviously it's a multifaceted situation. Yes,
1: it is. I I have to say that we are all still trying to understand everything about what has happened in this last election, what it means, and I don't think we will be able to actually put all of that in perspective for probably another 20 years. So I may not be part of the, of the analysis in the future, but I will say that I think at this stage we need to all step back and remind ourselves that being able to breathe and live in a healthy world is a bipartisan thing. Everyone needs clean air, clean water. We need food security. We need a lot of things that the planet delivers in general and that the ocean in particular drives, especially as it relates to climate weather. Basically, it boils down to chemistry, biology, and physics. All of those things are what make up nature. My personal feeling is that we must be working forward, engaging in conversations, trying to heal the divide that has appeared in the country. I think we need to be careful about how we speak. We need to try to begin with a clean slate, because if we are trying to plan for the best case scenario, that means we really need to start from scratch and have a discussion and understand as much as possible about what the various parties are seeking to accomplish. We have to do that with an open mind. And it's going to be a dialogue. That's the only thing that, that will get us where we need to go. It's not going to help for us to line up on opposite sides and just speak in an unkind manner to one another, I guess. It's the best way to do it. So I I really think that we have to enter this process with an open mind, but in an informed way, seek to have a conversation.
0: Well, I think that's great advice. And um, on more of an individual basis, our daily actions, I believe that there's a lot that we can do, you know, regardless of the governmental administration or, you know, what policies are being put into place or not uh, in terms of the environment. I know that later today, you are actually participating in a live Twitter chat, you know, as a representative of Mission Blue and Sylvia Earle Alliance, all about whether or not people should stop eating fish or reduce their seafood consumption. You know, I thought maybe you could give myself and listeners some of your thoughts in terms of Is our food consumption in terms of ocean organisms a way that we can take individual action on a daily basis, regardless of what the political arena has in store for us? Your thoughts on regulating fisheries via what we eat, because I know you have a long, you have a history working in, in fisheries as well
1: hmm yes, yeah, so um, I began in washington d c looking at law of the sea back in the mid nineteen seventies and also looking at our u s territories, all of which were islands, all of which were of course heavily dependent upon the ocean so that that's where i that I really began looking at fisheries. It was even apparent then that we were beginning to have places in in the world where, for example, tuna stocks were not doing well. The Eastern Tropical Pacific, was uh, there had been several collapses uh, related to fish species in the food chain, anchovies and sardines. And then tuna was beginning to be overexploited, and there was a need to form an organization. It was called the Inter-America Tropical Tuna Commission, and that organization was addressing the fact that we probably had overexploited those fish stocks even then. And that was more clear as we entered the 1980s. And everyone then started shifting the fishing to the Western Pacific. And that's when I happened to be out in the Western Pacific. I've watched as various things have been overexploited. Um, We need to be very cautious about it. Sylvia is correct in pointing out that why is it always that everything that's in the ocean is edible and we talk about seafood, but we don't talk about land food. It's because it just seems that that's sort of the big refrigerator that, that we can continue to go back to, and it will just keep being available. And it's just not the case. In recent years, there have been any number of studies that point out that we are overfishing. And if you are still eating fish, it's better to eat lower on the food chain. Sylvia points out we don't eat jaguars. We don't eat carnivores, land-based wildlife. So why are we eating carnivores and, and wildlife from the ocean in the way that we are, there is a true re- reduction happening. So, my personal feeling it 's not my place to tell other people how to eat, you know, but I can make some recommendations. I believe that the entire world would be better off if everyone ate more vegetables. It would be healthier and to eat as low on the food chain as possible uh, we 've domesticated a number of species, chicken, for example to fill a perceived protein level that we should have. But most health and dietitians will tell you that we have in the last few decades have eaten far too much meat and not at all enough vegetables. So I think that should be a piece of it. Some people would say, well, what about aquaculture? If you are feeding wild seafood to farmed fish, the, the math is just not good. Somewhere between four and seven pounds of wild fish can make one pound in the salmon. That's because they are carnivores and they're high on the food chain and they require a lot to even gain a pound. We also tend to eat fish that are the biggest and therefore the oldest without understanding that the Larger fish are the ones that are the most productive. So the the big, fat, fecan females, as they are referred to, are the ones that we need to leave in the ocean because they can produce more offspring than the young ones. Most species in the world are different from humans and a few of the marine mammals. In the case of humans and marine mammals, there is a period of time when once you're old, you don't produce anymore that's not true in the rest of the world. You can have very old females producing until they die in other species, but not with humans and marine mammals. We're different in that regard. I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Um, I personally you know, try to eat as vegetarian, vegan as I can, and it's not an easy thing to accomplish in the way food is presented these days. But I will tell you that I am a much healthier person now than I was 20 or 30 years ago when I was more of an omnivore.
0: Well, I think that, you know, with your years of experience and your background and your knowledge and and also your personal experience of changing your diet over, you know, your lifetime is very representative of what I think many can do and i love the statement you know usually what's good for you is good for the planet so yeah eating eating <laughs> yeah. eating more vegetables lower on the food chain it's better for you and and also better for the ocean and, and the health of the planet and so i want to ask you one last thing before we wrap up the episode here You have a long history working in marketing and you've worked in in a marketing role for for for-profit companies and non-profit companies and you really do a lot of education and messaging and marketing. So I'd like to ask you for listeners and also for myself as someone that is in the field of communications, in terms of conservation marketing and messaging, what is your best advice to someone that's trying to use or is using marketing and messaging to increase awareness about, you know, whatever conservation topic it might be?
1: I think we need to do a better job of researching the audiences that we are trying to reach and looking at how is the best way to communicate with them. With that research, we need to target not only uh, medium, but also specific audiences, because It's good to reach everyone, but we shouldn't feel that we have accomplished a job by just speaking to the people that already are with us. We really need to find ways to engage with the kinds of people who, in this election, for example, feel that what we have to say isn't relevant to them. But of course, we know that it is relevant, but how are we going to convince them that it is relevant? And I think we need to be very innovative and perhaps begin to enter markets and geographies that we have not previously entered, and we have to do that in a very new and original way. You know, it's all well and good to celebrate getting together as we do at the Blue Ocean Film Festival. It's really wonderful to be with that group of people and to recharge our batteries and to learn from one another more and more we need to find ways to get people that have never been to one (laughs) to attend, for example, because once they do come, they learn things very quickly. But how can we get those wonderful films out into the public in another way? Is there a digital platform where those films could be available? What are the mechanisms that we will be using to get the continuing message Social media has been a gift, but unfortunately, it has also resulted in people who are very much alike talking to each other rather than talking to the diversity of uh, human beings that are out there. Yeah. So I, I think we just, we really have to do some research. We have to do some thinking, how are we doing our messages? We need to, to evaluate the terminologies, the lexicon that we're using. We may be using too many shortcut things that we think everybody knows what we're talking about, and they have no idea what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's really great advice. And I think it's something that all conservationists should strive to do is reach audiences that you're not reaching, reach people that don't know the lingo and don't have the same perspective as you and so I think that's really valuable advice and so for listeners if you've been inspired by what Charlotte has talked about today on the podcast with me all of the amazing aspects of ocean everything that she's been involved with throughout her career you know she has background in fishery science and policy and finance and marketing and technology use and marketing and um, I said that. You know, all, all, <laughs> it's, all of it's the worth, above. It,
1: Marketing is worth repeating several times. <laughs>
0: yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so, you know, she's just got a, a wealth of knowledge on so many aspects of the world and that really makes her you know a top-notch ocean advocate and you know as part of mission blue and sylvia earl alliance she's definitely someone that is creating a lot of positive change for the planet so if you guys want to connect with her when i post this podcast episode i'll be linking to her personal twitter and facebook accounts so you can give her a like give her a follow and connect with her there if you feel so inclined and i will also be linking to the Mission Blue website and their social media channels as well. So you can learn more about the hope spots that we talked about and all that Sylvia Earle and the Mission Blue team are doing. I also want to point out that Ocean Allison is becoming an affiliate partner with Mission Blue. And look out for a blog post that Mission Blue will be putting out tomorrow on November 23rd, 2016, um, all about that partnership. And it'll also have a link to this podcast episode Check that out and support Mission Blue in any way that you can. I know I definitely do. And uh, Charlotte, I want to thank you so much for all the positive change that you're creating for the ocean and uh, also for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you.
1: Oh, I'm very happy to have been here and very happy to have you as a Mission Blue partner.
0: You just heard Charlotte Vick, Director of Engagement at Mission Blue, working with partners worldwide to facilitate, support, and fund ocean education, science, and policy efforts. She's all ocean, all the time. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at oceanallison.com. And don't forget to visit trulywetsuits.com, that's T-R-U-L-I, wetsuits.com, to take advantage of their Black Friday and Cyber Monday discounts. Love yourself, love the ocean, love truly wetsuits. And tune into next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.